Hello and welcome to ABC News Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl, And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And Rick, is that new music we got? What was it that? It is, it is. We, we, we dialed it up, a special <laughs> studio and, uh, and special music just for today's show. It kind of confuses me. Well, we're going to be talking uh, shortly with one of the top Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee. But Rick, right away, right at the very top of this podcast, we have our newly minted ABC News contributor, the former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie. Governor Christie, thank you for joining us. John, Rick, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So let's get right. It's great to have you here. Let's get right to it. You you uh, said something to George Stephanopoulos the other day that caught my attention. He asked you point blank, should President Trump agree to be interviewed by the special counsel? You answered with a very blunt no. So can we dig into that a little sure. bit? Because my sense is, I mean, and, and by way of background, the president has looked me in the eye twice and told me that he absolutely would talk to the independent, to the special counsel. Um, but his lawyers are basically saying exactly what you said. So what what's going to happen here? Well, I, I, listen, ultimately what, what will happen is whatever the president wants to happen because he's the client and, and he gets to make the choice. But I, I just don't think it's in his interest to do it, and that's the, the basis upon which I made the statement I made to George last week. I mean, you know, there's just not – it's not in the president's interest to sit down with a prosecutor um, and to give that prosecutor – unfettered access to his thoughts and feelings about um, a whole variety of issues that have happened over a long period of time where the president's recollection may be very good and in some instances not. Um, and so I just don't think it's in his interest to do it. And that's why I gave the answer that I gave. Um, and, you know, listen, I'm a former prosecutor, as you know, I was U.S. attorney for seven years in New Jersey. I'd love to have the opportunity as a prosecutor to do that. That wasn't the question, though. The question George asked was, do I think the president should do it? And I think the answer is no. Okay, then the, the follow-up question is, can he avoid it? I mean, if you go back, you know full well that obviously uh, Bill Clinton uh, testified in, to, uh, in, in the Starr investigation. Uh, George W. Bush uh, was questioned in the Scooter Libby investigation. Ronald Reagan was uh, questioned in the Iran-Contra investigation. How does this president avoid what so many of his predecessors had to do. Well, let's each one of those things can can be distinguished from this circumstance, but let's let's do the Clinton one since it's the it's the it's one of the more salient ones in regard to the scope of the investigation. Um, Bill Clinton had given a deposition under oath in a civil matter for Paula Jones, which is really what led to um, their uh, interest and their ability to be able to question him uh, under oath in the special counsel area because they had evidence that he had lied under oath, which is a crime. Um, we have no evidence that this president has committed a crime at this point. And so the ability for Bob Mueller to bring him in, listen, if Bob Mueller wants to subpoena the president of the United States to a grand jury, he can. Um, but that's a very, very aggressive step that I think the special counsel won't do unless he has real grounds to do it. And I don't know yet that we have evidence that he does. So the way to avoid it is that it's kind of a severe step. Now, if a grand jury subpoena is served on the president of the United States, then everyone's going to have to make some judgments about how they respond to that. And that puts us in a different realm. The question I was asked was essentially, should he voluntarily appear? And, and my position would be no. Do you think they'd have to make some kind of arrangement, though? Was some kind of a questioning is inevitable in this is a political matter, if not as a legal matter? Well, I think there may be some questioning that's inevitable here, but you got to see how it plays out. 
you know, Bob Mueller is a serious guy. And, you know, I've, I've been supportive of Mueller all the way throughout. Uh, I worked f- with him when I was U.S. attorney. He was director of the FBI. He's not going to question the president just for the sake of questioning the president. He's only going to ask the question, the president of the United States, if there is a real factual basis and need for him to do so to advance or complete his investigation. And I don't think we know that yet. And my guess is Bob Mueller doesn't know that yet. And that why, that's why I don't think he's asked for the interview yet. So as a political matter, it only becomes necessary, I think, Rick, if Bob Mueller asks for it. Then you have a political issue. If Bob Mueller never asks, then I don't think Donald Trump as president has any obligation to volunteer to do it. As you know, there was a, a big to-do over the last couple of days about the Nunes memo. When that came out, the president was quick to say that shows that Mueller's got nothing, basically. It, it, it clears Trump. Do you v- share that view? To, is, to what you saw in the Nunes memo, does that clear Donald Trump's name? No. Um, nor does it clear anybody else in the administration. What it is is another important piece of evidence um, that Mueller will have to consider as he's working his way through this. But a lot of what, at least if what's reported is accurate, Rick, a lot of what he's looking at now is all uh, obstruction and other issues that happened post any alleged collusion that went on um, or didn't go on. Uh, I happen to have always believed there didn't, there wasn't any, but it doesn't matter. At, at this point, the, the special counsel is looking at it, and, and my view on it is that um, the Nunes matter is only just another piece of evidence that the special counsel should be considering when deciding you know, who to charge in this matter, if anyone, um, or when to close the investigation. And do we need to see the Democratic response to it? Do you think that needs to be declassified for part of that full consideration of the uh, of the evidence? I don't know that it really matters, but I, at this point, since the Republican one has been declassified, I wouldn't object to the Democratic one being declassified. Um, but I don't know that it's, again, necessary, because I would presume that the special counsel could have access to it if he wanted to through either a cooperative agreement with the with the House or through a subpoena. So I don't switching gears entirely here. There's a, another Gabe Sherman article looking at some uh, some of the palace intrigue here at the White House, and I, one one quote jumped out at me. He uh, quotes somebody close to the president who speaks with him regularly, uh, who says the president's not happy with his current team. And then there, here's the quote: He's saying he should have put Rudy at state and Chris Christie at justice. So. Let me ask you a little thought experiment. How okay. would this first year of the Trump presidency have looked if Rudy Giuliani was the Secretary of State and Chris Christie was the Attorney General? Well, it would be different. I guarantee you that. It's <laughs> an understatement, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, listen, I, I have nothing but good things to say about Rex Tillerson, so I don't want this to be taken as any criticism of Rex, but Rudy is, is a different personality and brings different experience to it, and I think Rudy would have been a really good Secretary of State. So, um, and, and I certainly expressed that to the President-elect at the time when I was involved in the as Chairman of the Transition. Um, as far as myself, I'm not going to get into talking about myself. I, I think, John, um, those people who watched me be the U.S. Attorney in New Jersey for seven years, um, have a pretty good idea of how I would have conducted myself as Attorney General. Um, and so it certainly would have been different. It would have been very different personalities. Rudy Giuliani and Chris Christie are very different personalities than um, Rex Tillerson and Jeff Sessions. Would you take the job now if it were to come open? I don't, who, you know, I don't, I don't expect to be offered the job, Rick. <laughs> so. so I, I want to take, take you back eight days. The president gives that State of the Union address. I think Pretty good that's, a, that's an eternity in this yeah, town, it's a long, by the way. It's a long uh, time days. already, exactly. Eight days. So you were on our air and talking about the president, and, and I think he got pretty good reviews all around. 
What happened since then? What happened well, in, the, in the next week and a day? Well, what happens is kind of what unfortunately often has happened in the last year, which is we get distracted from the substance by personality issues and and um, what I would call peripheral issues. I consider the Nunes memo a peripheral issue, right, to the State of the Union. And so you get distracted by that. Now we're, restra- we're distracted by the allegations against uh, Rob Porter, the staff secretary at the White House. And so instead of spending all this week, which in traditional White Houses would have been done, um, I'm talking about the State of the Union and the high points of the speech, and there were a number of them, I thought, um, for the president. We're instead spending our time talking about Devin Nunez and, and um, his memo, and we're spending our time talking about you know Rob Porter and his previous personal life. And the president calling Democrats on American for not for not applauding. Yeah, but you know what? Like, listen, I know the president, you know, for a long time. You know, sometimes people just take some of the things he says, um, I think, too literally and too seriously. This is, in the, yes, in the end, he's president of the United States now, but he's just a guy from Queens. And being a guy from Jersey, I kind of understand guys from Queens. We're not brothers, but we're like cousins. Um, and, you know, they tend to be a little bit hyperbolic and, and all the rest of that in their speech and a little bit dramatic. And I think the president is clearly that. And so that part of it just kind of makes me laugh. I, I don't think the president thinks Democrats are really un-American, nor did he think not standing for his speech. I don't think he thought was treasonous. I think much more likely he just didn't like it. And I, you know, having given eight state of the state speeches, you know, after a while you get used to the Democrats not standing for you and it's okay. Yeah, look, it wasn't treasonous. It wasn't un-American, but it was odd. Uh, you know, I, I've been in a lot of those State of the Union addresses, and it was strange to watch. I was actually in the chamber. You saw the president come in, and they didn't applaud when he, when he, when he was announced, when he, when he came in the room. They didn't applaud at the end of the speech. They ran to the exits. Uh, it's just, it, even for partisan State of the Union responses, that, that, that was a little bit odd. Um, Agreed, by the way. Know. And I said that. On our broadcast afterwards, you know, when people were being critical that the president hadn't unified the room, you know, my response is twofold and was that night. First is, there's nothing he could have said that would have made those people stand up. They're in wartime 2018 midterm footing, and that's what they're going to do. They're going to they're gonna just be in a battle until November of 18 with this guy, and they're not going to give him an inch. And secondly, remember something. He wasn't talking to that room. He was talking to the rest of the country, and when you look at where his approval ratings have gone since then, when you look at the polls that have been done on, on what people thought of the speech, it was a good speech to the rest of the country, even if it didn't unify that room. But, but let, me, let me ask you, you brought up the Rob Porter situation. I, I want to get your sense of how the White House handled this both before it became public and, and now that it's been public. We, you know, he, he was given a very important job in this White House. I mean, it's one of, one of the, the most critical positions, staff secretary. Yep. Uh, we, we, we know that both of his ex-wives uh, had, had talked to the FBI, and uh, th- there, had been a, there had been a restraining order against him, you know, several years ago. Was, was, was there a failure in vetting? And then once all this came public, including the photographs of, of his of his first wife, you know, uh, uh, with black eyes. Um, did, you know, the, the White House is still kind of saying, they're, they're saying he's resigned, but he's going to stick around for a transition, and he's a great guy. And, and Kelly just yesterday was talking about how he was so honored to, uh, you know, how he's been honored to serve with him. I mean, have they, what kind of a message are they sending on this? 
Well, listen, John, I think first off, you know, he's resigned. And, and but he's still here. He's still here. He I understand. Left. I understand. But he's resigned, and that is a move that brings disgrace to your name and your reputation, because he didn't resign voluntarily. It's clear that he was forced to resign given the circumstances. So let's get to the results first and foremost. Then, secondly, I'd say to you, yeah, I mean, if you've got somebody there, if they did not know about these things before they employed him, then that's a failure of vetting. Did his name come up during the transition at all? When you were no, because chairman? you know we didn't we didn't um, vet White House staff at that stage. In the pre-election stage, our vetting was was really focused on cabinet and subcabinet, mm-hmm. and we felt that White House staff could wait till there was a chief of staff designated by the president, and then that person would really take the lead, and then we'd vet people that that chief of staff sent to us to be considered. So we didn't get into it, and Porter was certainly not a name that came up for a cabinet position. Um, But if they didn't know, it's a failure of vetting. Um, And I think that the other thing people forget is, when you work in a place like that, whether it's a state house or a white house, people get personally very, very close. and you're, you feel like you're kind of in a battle, in a war together. You're in a foxhole together. And they tend to always want to give those people who are in the foxhole the benefit of the doubt. And so I think that's part of what you probably saw with the reaction that General Kelly gave and, and some of the other folks. Uh, but in the end, they made him resign. And so the foxhole didn't last all that long. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think probably appropriately so, um, given the pictures that we saw and all the rest. I mean... There's no way that any White House or any other employer can countenance domestic violence. And if, in fact, um, you know, these women have gotten restraining orders and other things and have been willing to go on the record and say it, while that doesn't mean for certain that Mr. Porter is guilty, it certainly raises enough of a concern that if you're in a position like that, um, you pro- you need to go. And so I think, Jonathan... And this is part of the way where I think sometimes we're unfair to people in public life, not just the president, but but lots of folks. You know, if they get to the right result, we're critical of the process on how they got there. If they don't get to the right result, we're critical of that and the process. I mean, if you get to the right result, ultimately, which I think was gotten to here with Rob Porter resigning, they do need to get some credit for that. And then if there needs to be an examination now in retrospect of the process, which there should be, um, then we should examine that and they should let everybody know why he was in the job he was in to begin with. Military parade on Pennsylvania Avenue. Thumbs up or thumbs down to this idea? I don't care. I mean, I really, really don't care. I, I, I like. Then why do it? I mean, it's going to cost taxpayer dollars. It's going to chew up the streets the in Washington. The president gets a chance to choose. Like, he didn't ask me, <laughs> I mean, whether I thought it was a good idea or a bad idea. I don't really care about whether we have a military parade or we don't. And I think it's one of these things where we'll spend a couple of days now you know, grinding a lot on, on TV and radio and podcasts like this and others about it, when in the end, the American people aren't going to care one way or another, whether it happens or it doesn't happen. So I don't but, think we But, should... Governor, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. What, have a military parade? Yeah. I never had one when I was governor, and I was <laughs> the National Guard, and I was, you know, commander in chief of the New Jersey National Guard. We only had those. We I reviewed the troops once a year, uh-huh. every year. 
um, at, in Seagirt at the National Guard headquarters. I would review the troops once a year, get a 19-gun salute. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but um, we didn't have parades, no. But we did have review of the troops every year. Um, so uh, that was something that, at least my understanding was, it was required for me to do as commander-in-chief. So, you know, if, if, the, if the president decides he wants to have a parade, um, that's his call. He's the president. Uh, but will it make me feel either much better about him or much worse? No, won't. Won't matter. All right, before you go, we we, we got to ask you. You, you there had been talk about you uh, having a having a you know morning show on WFAN Sports Talk. Yeah. Uh, so what 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 did we see some of this in your future? Are we going to see you doing doing some uh, doing some sports commentary? And, I don't and think what the, so, John. Yeah. I'd love to, but I don't think so. Well, what what about? I know you're a I know you're a diehard Cowboys fan. I am. I, I, so is John I, I Carl, by the way. The only two yeah, people I, I know that, that are Cowboys and Mets fans are you and John Carl. By that's, the way, that's why we connect so deeply <laughs> on such a I mean, personal this is level. A, it's America's team, and we're both Americans. That's but very I, right. How, how did you take the Super Bowl? Did you, you know, uh, where you got a lot of obviously Eagles fans in in Jersey, right? And yet the Eagles are the freaking Eagles who so I've we're, angered, we're, we're, who I've angered for eight years, as you know, John, <laughs> by being a Cowboys yeah. fan, and they, you know, and listen. Um, I am happy for Eagle fans because previous to this, they were the angriest, most miserable fans in America. <laughs> and so now, now they're the happiest, most miserable fans. Right in America. now, they get to be happy. So, like, I want them to enjoy their parade tomorrow. Now, there's a parade I can get behind. You know, if your team wins the Super Bowl, you should have a parade. And so, you know, have a parade Definitely. down Broad Street tomorrow. I hope the weather's okay. I hope they have a great time. I hope there's millions of people there. I, I didn't root for either team on Sunday. I just watched the game, and it was a good game. I Very enjoyed game. the game. Um, but I was not encumbered by any rooting interest. Um, I'm not a Pats fan. I'm clearly not an Eagles fan. And so, uh, and I had a woman come up to me um, uh, in, in, a, in a hotel I was in over the weekend, and she said, you know, Governor, come on. you got to root for the Eagles. And I said, all right, let me ask you a question. You're an Eagles fan, right? She said, yeah. I said, if the Cowboys were in the Super Bowl, would you root for the Cowboys? And she goes, no. And I go, well, then why do I have to root for the Eagles? Um, so I'm happy for the Eagle fans that the, the cloak of failure that has hung on them since 1960 <laughs> has been lifted. And that's great for them, and I'm thrilled for them. But, you know, um, I had no rooting interest on Sunday. I just watched the game and enjoyed it. Finally, an honest answer. That was well done. How about that, Yeah, huh? there you go. <laughs> that was good. That was good. All right, Governor Chris Christie, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Welcome to ABC, and we'll talk to you again soon. Happy we to be to a part a of quick... the team, John. Thank you. Great great to have you here. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Eric Swalwell, congressman from California and a member of the House Intelligence Committee, a Democratic member. Are you feeling limitless? I don't think I've ever told this story publicly on the air anywhere, but I'll tell it now. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Are you a psychiatrist? (laughs) No. Each week, we're taking an honest look at success and how to get there with the boldest, most influential women in the world. Jessica Alba. Ariana Huffington. Issa Rae. Barbara Corcoran. Robin Roberts. Welcome to No Limits. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This is No Limits. Hey, this is Dan Harris, and uh, I want to tell you about my podcast called 10% Happier. You can listen every Wednesday for new guests and new perspectives. Some of these are people you know, uh, celebrities, athletes, executives. Uh, Some of them are uh, more obscure people that I'm obsessed with that I think you might be obsessed with once you uh, give them a listen. 
and you can hear about how they're using meditation to up their game in all these interesting areas of life. Again, the podcast is called 10% Happier. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now and subscribe today. Joining us now, Eric Swalwell, Democratic Congressman, member of the House Intelligence Committee, which Rick has been the subject of uh, quite a bit of debate. They've been now, in the news. They've yeah, been yeah, the they've been around. But, uh, Congressman, I want to get to your to, to the memo that uh, we expect to be released sometime, perhaps by the end of the week. But first, um, <laughs> there's been some there've been some other developments here surrounding the president. Uh, there's been this talk of a big military parade that he wants to have to show the French how it's really done. And also, of course, his discussion of, of you guys as being traitors for not applauding him at the State of the Union address. So can I just – I want to read two recent tweets from you and get you to explain what you're, what you're talking about. First, on the subject of the applause at the State of the Union, uh, you wrote uh, – tweeted, Dear Real Donald Trump, I didn't clap for you for your – GOP tax scam economics count me as a proud traitor and honored to serve with my brave house Democratic colleagues. And then about the military parade, you've just uh, tweeted, it's a trap. Don't panic over this. He's doing this. So you forget he said he'd interview with Mueller and now he won't. You're in a Twitter war with the president of the United States. (laughs) And now I'm just learning how to salute. So I'm not, you know, brought up on treason charges on this parade comes you know through town <laughs> i've been practicing that but isn't this a potential trap for you guys though i mean a lot of people watched the state of the union and they saw democrats on their you know sitting down uh, not applauding even lines about bipartisanship and i understand what was going on and understand why so many democrats did not want to applaud this president and now we could potentially see a you know a great display of patriotism perhaps you know a little with a little North Korean flair, but but a, a military parade and put you guys in a position of, of, of not supporting the military, at least symbolically. You know, I stood when it was uh, deserved. I, I met with a bunch of Alzheimer's patients uh, over the weekend. I told them one part uh, where I stood up was when the president talked about, uh, you know, the right uh, to have a, a clinical trial, the right to live uh, and uh, have hope. I mean, I, I'm with him there and we'll work with him uh, there. Uh, but you know, it's to this military parade. I mean, we should honor our military every day and, and twice on Sunday. But the truth is, you know, this would be a, you know, a monumental, uh, you know, waste of money uh, to do this if it's only to satisfy uh, the president uh, and his very, uh, very big ego. And so uh, I hope that's not why he's doing it. Uh, there's many ways to honor our veterans, uh, you know, including taking care of them, uh, finding them jobs, uh, giving them the, you know, safety uh, that they need on, on the battlefield, not sending them to, you know, reckless wars. And, and so, uh, but it, my larger point there was, we see this often from him. If you remember uh, when he was suggesting that, you know, it'd be a, a crime to, I think, to, to burn the flag. Uh, and, and there was, you know, the Russian investigation was heating up uh, at that time. This is a, you know, a confetti bomb uh, that we've seen from this president, I think, to just kind of keep us from connecting other dots that are probably more important. But that, doesn't that make it make it more important that Democrats handle this carefully? I mean, you, I understand what you're saying, that you, you don't want to do this massive waste if it's just to feed his ego. But why not 
salute the troops, if that's the idea. Make sure that it, it, it fits in with, with the right kind of vision for what this is. And obviously the president's commander-in-chief will be a big piece of this. But you don't want to be on the side of the flag burners. You don't want to be on the side of right. those who disrespect the national anthem. We've seen that before. Why not say, okay, this is the, 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 let's make sure this works in a way that, uh, that's acceptable. And that's why I said uh, don't panic over this, because uh, I think what he's trying to do is to be pro- you know, mostly provocative uh, you know, in, in doing this. Uh, and, you know, we, we do support our troops. Uh, but, you know, I, I think most troops would tell you uh, they'd rather uh, be taken care of uh, than, you know, have to uh, march to the president's tune uh, down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. So, Congressman, I want to turn to the, the issue of the memo that we're, uh, we're waiting on some kind of a, uh, a final word from the White House. The, the vote happened in the Intelligence Committee that you're a member of uh, earlier in the week to, to send this to the president's desk. Uh, what Inf- what are we going to learn from this memo that we don't learn already? What's the intention behind it, and what, what's the takeaway if we indeed see it at some point this week? What the Republicans did uh, was poisonous to the investigation, and, and we think clearing it up with, with our uh, rebuttal memo is the, the best antidote uh, to just make sure we point by point you know, rebut uh, what they have asserted to show the seriousness of the investigation and uh, the arsenal of evidence uh, that went into uh, the FISA application. Uh, that, that's our goal. Uh, but, uh, you know, frankly, it's time to move on uh, and interview witnesses again. We haven't interviewed a witness in about a month now because uh, we've been going through these attacks on process uh, and have not been putting witnesses in the chair to collect evidence. So do you think there will be a need for redactions here? I mean, you've, you've, you've obviously... You've actually obviously read the memo. It's, I mean, all that we really know is it's longer than the Republican memo. Um, but uh, the, the sometimes facts uh, do that. <laughs> <laughs> but but are are, are you? Uh, I mean, are there going to be legitimate redactions here? Le- 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 legitimate things that need to be redacted because they reveal sources and methods. Yeah, yeah. We we showed discretion that uh, the Republicans didn't. Uh, you know, we we wanted to send ours to DOJ, and we've asked that ours be sent there. Uh, and scrubbed of anything that uh, is sensitive. But in the context of they've already put out information about sources and methods uh, in an incomplete way, and that uh, to the degree that we're just cleaning it up or putting it into fuller context, uh, you know, we don't want to see that scrubbed. Uh, but uh, we don't believe we have revealed new sources and methods. Uh, we, were, we wrote it in a limited way. Uh, but, uh, you know, we really had to, you know, clean up uh, the mess they've made. And my fear, you know, frankly, is that when you make allegations like this that are baseless, what you do is you're not only undermining this investigation, but these FBI agents and DOJ lawyers in every courtroom in America today are trying to convince uh, jurors that they did the right thing and that they should be trusted. And they should only be judged on what they did in those cases. And by airing this so publicly with an ongoing investigation, I think it risks hurting their credibility. And I think that could be the, the real collateral damage here. But, but just just from the perspective of the White House here, they're saying it's going to be the exact same process as last time. I, I want to be clear on this point, because they went through the process, the FBI raised objections publicly, and we presume privately as well, and the White House went ahead with a memo that had no redactions. In your view, is it acceptable if there are redactions in the Democratic response memo? Political redactions would not be acceptable. Uh, and what's interesting is now they're very interested uh, in what the DOJ and the FBI has to say, because Christopher Wray uh, uncharacteristically uh, made a public statement and said that their memo was dangerously 
uh, reckless uh, and that he had grave concerns over it. We haven't heard that sentiment yet uh, about our memo, uh, but again, we, we don't want to be as reckless uh, you know, as they are, and that's why ours was very, very carefully written. What did you make of Trey Gowdy's interview on Sunday uh, on uh, on Face the Nation? He struck a, a lot of people as, um, I mean, some, some of your colleagues said they didn't quite recognize the guy that ran the Benghazi hearings, but he he made it clear that nothing in the Republican memo exonerates the president, that uh, there would absolutely be a Russia investigation without the Steele steel, uh, dossier, uh, that the Steele dossier had nothing to do with why the meeting at Trump Tower with, with Don Jr. and the Russian lawyers was a, uh, you know, is, is, is a thing of interest, uh, nothing to do with, with the other major pillars of this investigation. He sounded like somebody, now Gowdy's not running for re-election, but he sounded like somebody that is very serious about investigating Russian meddling and, in fact, investigating this White House. You know, I, I respect uh, Trey Gowdy. He was also a former prosecutor. But in this case, I don't see how you can separate the memo from undermining the Russia investigation. So it's like he's the guy that lit the match and then is standing on top of the hill and saying, geez, uh, you know, I can't believe that that village uh, over there is going to you know, catch fire. I mean, of course it's going to catch fire. You know, that, that was the whole intent was to undermine what Bob Mueller uh, was doing. And, and so uh, I, I think it's a little bit, uh, it, I, I, don't, I, I don't think that is uh, a fair assessment, that they don't have anything to do with each other. The, 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 he's, the memo comments on the work of the FBI suggest that the fix is in and there's an ongoing investigation uh, that they have provided evidence you know, in an ongoing investigation, they've taken evidence in that investigation, aired it to the public, and have also turned it over to subjects and witnesses of that investigation to decide what is, uh, you know, put out to the public as well. So but, there's but, a lot of problems here. But if I can press you on that, I mean, it's, it's one thing to say that, um, that this is a massive distraction. I mean, Sean Hannity and, 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 and some, of your, uh, some of your Republican colleagues are making it sound like this was going to be the... the you know, this, this huge scandal and undermine Mueller and everything else. But it's, it's one thing to say that on the narrow question of whether or not the FISA application for surveillance of Carter Page was done in a way that cut corners, was done in a way that uh, did not disclose everything that should have been disclosed to the judge, uh, and therefore is problematic, even from a civil libertarian standpoint. I can imagine Democrats in an entirely different case following a similar set of facts would be, would be raising alarms about that. that that's one thing. But it, 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 it's another thing to say that whatever they did with Carter Page somehow impugns uh, Mueller. I mean, it, well, it doesn't. I mean, the I Mueller, accept, Carter Page first, is, a, is a bit player in that investigation, isn't he? Yeah, I accept the, the first point if we are talking about it in the context of a closed investigation. Uh, which is very different. Here, the investigation is ongoing. The evidence that they sent over to the White House that was a part of the FISA application uh, relates to witnesses who are at uh, the White House who may or may not have been questioned yet. So the first problem is you are showing uh, potential witnesses uh, some of the evidence in the case, and that's something that no investigator would ever uh, afford uh, to a witness that they want to question. Second, you're questioning the process uh, as it's taking place. So it's, it's literally a, a play-by-play 
uh, review of an ongoing investigation. Uh, and third is, you know, to the sources and methods that you know Republicans say did not damage national security. Well, we did acknowledge uh, now publicly sources and methods that had only been uh, reported on, but never acknowledged by the Department of Justice. Now it is uh, formally acknowledged that Christopher Steele was a longstanding informant, and that uh, will reflect on other cases uh, that he had been a part of, and also individuals right now who are helping the FBI as a source in ongoing uh, cases may think twice about whether or not they want to continue to cooperate uh, and you know, not risk having their identities revealed in an ongoing uh, investigation. So we should always have oversight. I think the way that we're doing this, uh, as I said, in a play-by-play fashion, uh, is only intended uh, to undermine uh, what's going on with uh, Bob Mueller. And as to Carter Page, if this guy wasn't under surveillance, I don't know who uh, is under surveillance uh, then uh, by the FBI. I mean, he's somebody who self-identified as having a direct line uh, to the Kremlin, you know, one of our foreign adversaries. Do you have clarity on, on, on a point that was raised, I know, in, the, in, in committee, whether Devin Nunes and, and the Republicans on the Intelligence Committee coordinated in any way with the White House in, in putting together that initial memo, the Republican memo? Do you know for sure one way or the other? Do you have suspicions? We know he won't give us a straight answer, which is telling. You know, we've asked him a number of times. He's refused uh, to answer. Uh, that transcript, I think, is forthcoming uh, from that most recent uh, open hearing that we had. Uh, the best answer we've gotten was that they were not, that the White House was not a part of the drafting of the memo. But that doesn't mean the White House wasn't a part of the conceiving of the memo or uh, reviewing of the memo. And uh, again, knowing that he's already gone over there uh, to the White House, uh, you know, to work with them. Uh, if passed his prologue, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all that uh, this is uh, an effort in concert uh, with the White House. But you have no evidence of that? that other than, you know, it, it's a pretty straight answer. Did, did you work with them or not? And if you didn't, you would probably say, no, I didn't. All right. Well, we know you have to go. I just have one one more question. I, I, I've covered... Congress and, and White Houses for, um, for longer than I would care to admit. And I have never seen an intelligence committee, House or Senate, that is so completely uh, racked by partisanship and infighting. The, the, the whole idea, as you well know, of the intelligence committee is it's a committee that is kind of supposed to be. And, and, and there, there have been fights on intelligence committees over the years, but it's supposed to be largely above politics. Uh, it's supposed to be a committee that, that, you know, looks at national security from, from, a, from a nonpartisan uh, oversight perspective. Is, is there any turning back with this committee? I mean, this just seems to be, uh, I mean, one of the most dysfunctional committees in the entire Congress. I, I hate to hear that because I joined the Intelligence Committee uh, because uh, I wanted to be a part of what you uh, described. I was an intern on the Hill when September 11th happened. I was inspired by the work that uh, the Intelligence Committee and the Independent Commission did uh, to respond to that attack and, and make us safer. And after the Russian interference campaign, uh, it was my hope and my, my colleagues' hope that we would act in that way to look at what had happened, identify who was responsible, determine whether the government response was adequate, and then put in reforms uh, to fix it. And I can tell you where the wheels fell off. I can identify the day. It was uh, right after James Comey's testimony, which I thought was a very, very illuminating hearing for the public uh, on March 20th, where he said the president's campaign was under investigation. And then days later, our chairman 
uh, went over to the White House and showed that the loyalty was to help them, not to work as a committee. And so I, I think the only way that we can get back to where we were before March 20, 2017, is to have a new chairman. And I also hate to say that because Devin Nunes is someone that I'd worked with uh, pretty well before. But I, I think the harm is irreparable, uh, but that the committee is still salvageable uh, with a new leader. All right. Congressman Stalwell, California, and the House Intelligence Thanks, Committee. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Congressman. Uh, I, I remember those days. I was not an intern on September 11th, uh, Rick. <laughs> Neither, but, was uh, Neither was I. <laughs> but, uh, Truth be told. <laughs> Young Congressman Swalwell, yes. Uh, but that was, uh, that was Chairman Porter Goss, uh, Republican in the House, and uh, his uh, Florida colleague in the Senate, uh, Bob Graham, Democrat. Um, and I remember you know, working hand-in-hand in, in, those, in, those, in those days after September 11th. But anyway, those, those were the days. Do, do, do you think, though... Just there, wasn't he overstating the damage done by this memo? And, and and doesn't the FBI look like they've? I mean, once you read that memo and you heard grave concerns, and you actually read that memo, yeah, I yeah, mean, I, I think it was I, exaggerated by both sides, well, wasn't I, it? I think I think it, it's an. I think if you if you were able to separate these out and say. Let's leave the Mueller investigation and the FBI conduct during the Russia investigation to one side. And let's just look at the, the conduct by the FBI as, as oversight of the Intelligence Committee, what they do inside a FISA court. That's a different issue. And I think that's where you can find legitimate issues with what kind of evidence was used. Now, it's a selective reading. We haven't seen the underlying intelligence. I think it's interesting. I mean, Congressman Swalwell said even that most members of the committee haven't read the whole FISA application. But when you're in the middle of a, an investigation, which we know this is still active, and you put things out in a, on a selective basis, I do think it does some damage potentially to the overall overall investigation. That said, I read that memo and and it's hard to see where the sources and methods reside exactly. Uh, you know, I think FISA and the whole process of the secret intelligence courts, there isn't a lot of oversight. Uh, I'm a big fan of transparency. I know you are, John, and you find these things interesting. Uh, and you could use more daylight, not less. But I, look, I, I think I think the, the, the irreparable harm to intelligence agencies based on that memo, I didn't see that. I also didn't see irreparable harm to the Mueller investigation. Right. I didn't right. see any impact on the Mueller right. investigation. Right. I mean, it seemed a little bit anticlimactic at the end of the day. And the fact that uh, Carter Page was under surveillance was hardly a, a state right. secret. Right. I mean, Maybe it should have been, but I don't think. It, I mean, we it been it had been widely reported way before that memo came out. Uh, the question, you know, one interesting thing to think about is we know that the surveillance warrant was renewed three times, and you need to have you need to demonstrate, as I understand, you need to demonstrate to the judge that the that the warrant has been fruitful to get it renewed. So you wonder what mm. were they getting yeah. uh, by listening into Carter Page. And you also wonder, was he still in touch with his former colleagues? Um, you know, was he, was he still in touch during the transition with anybody in the Trump transition? Was he still in touch with anybody in the White House? We just, we just don't know. And the he connection did, to Russia, we know. I mean, he told George Stephanopoulos uh, earlier this week that he was an uh, informal advisor to the Kremlin at one point. That, that's, but, but I think he said basically everybody was. Right, right. Everyone was doing it. But no, that's, that's, that's eye-raising. And you can imagine if that information comes out and the FBI I mean, knows I've been to the that. Kremlin. You know, are you going you're gonna to impugn me, Rick? I mean, I, I've been to Russia several times. Yes, what did who who did you meet with? There, I, I met with some really shady characters. Are there any tapes? <laughs> Is there anything we used to worry about, John? 
On that note, I think that this is uh, we need to get we need to get back to work, Rick. Uh, Powerhouse Politics will be back next week, maybe even sooner. Our special thanks to Avery Miller, Dave Ryan, the entire Powerhouse Politics team. We will catch you again next week.